1: Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe?
2: I highly appreciate the enormous efforts and the determination of Ukraine in this process. We will and you will rebuild this beautiful country and modernize Ukraine. And I just want to say we stand by your side, Slava-Ukraine.
3: Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico in Brussels. And you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen speaking on a visit to Kiev last weekend. Von der Leyen praised Ukraine's efforts to become a candidate for EU membership. That application is still the subject of intense debates among EU member countries ahead of a summit next week, so expect much more on that in the days to come. Von der Leyen hasn't been the only EU leader to visit Ukraine in recent days. Olaf Scholz, Emmanuel Macron, and Mario Draghi were in Kiev on Thursday with messages of support. We'll see how those translate into decisions at the summit. In this episode of the podcast, you'll hear how the war has put the spotlight on a remote strip of land along the border between Lithuania and Poland. We'll get the latest on the global food crisis sparked by the war. And we'll also catch up on the latest Brexit related dust up between the UK and the EU. On a lighter note, we're going to get a bit meta and hold a panel discussion about panel discussions. We'll ask why political types are so addicted to them and decode the panel speak that plagues the Brussels bubble. And later in the podcast, you'll hear from a veteran UK diplomat, John Ramsden, about his new book, The Poet's Guide to Economics. Something a bit different, a book about how poets down the centuries have got involved in the rather prosaic world of economics. It's a fascinating discussion, so do stick around for that. Also, as I mentioned last week, this is my last show in the host's chair, so we'll have more details on what's next for the podcast The short version, this will continue to be the essential and entertaining weekly listen for everything about European politics. But first, let's turn to this week's podcast panel. Welcome to Chief Europe Correspondent, Matt Karnichnik. Matt's joining us from a secret outdoor location with a few noisy kids in the background. Hi, Matt. Chris Scott. And with me in the studio, Brussels Playbook co-author Suzanne Lynch. Hi, Suzanne. Hello and our agriculture reporter, Eddie Wax. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Andrew. So I thought first we would just do a quick round focusing on the topics that you have been reporting on in recent days. Uh, Get up to speed on some of those, which are some of, I think, the big stories of interest to our listeners at the moment. And then we're going to get a bit meta. We're going to have a panel about panels. Um, But before we do that, Matt, why don't you start by telling us about the piece that you've got uh, coming out?
2: Well, I've been writing about the so-called Suvalki Gap, which some people prefer to call the Suvalki Corridor, which is this stretch of land between Kaliningrad, which is controlled by Russia, of course, this former German-controlled enclave on the Baltic, and uh, Belarus, and it runs through Lithuania along the Polish border. It's just about 65 kilometers, and some people think it's the most dangerous place In Europe now because there's a big fear that in the wake of Ukraine and the aggression that we've seen from Russia that they could try to up the ante by trying to move into this corridor which would seal the Baltics off from the rest of NATO if they were to do that and we've heard a lot about land bridges recently in the context of Ukraine and this would allow the Russians to create another land bridge between Belarus, which they effectively control, and Kaliningrad, where they have a massive army presence and, of course, part of their nuclear arsenal, uh, their Baltic fleet, and, and so forth.
3: Okay, let's uh, let's move along. I just wanted to give Suzanne and Eddie a chance to talk about what they've been uh, covering. Eddie, maybe because we're talking about uh, Ukraine there or the war in Ukraine, uh, something that you've uh, talked to us about on the podcast before is the global food crisis, which has been triggered uh, by the, the war. Give us a sense of where that stands now. You've been following it this week. I think there's been a big conference. You know, how serious are things getting and is the international community, if you like, if such a thing still exists, able to do? much about it.
0: I think the international community is uh, riven with splits and uh, just like it is on all other areas uh, unfortunately. Even the issue of uh, world hunger doesn't seem to be something everyone can agree about. Um, I was following this week the Council of the FAO, so that's the special executive branch of uh, 49 countries that make up the, the this um, executive body of the UN agency on food security and the whole discussion yesterday really got bogged down in a, a debate about to what extent the EU sanctions on Russia are to blame for the spiralling costs of food. That's something that the EU and Western countries like uh, you know the US and the UK completely reject. And when it comes to Ukraine itself, there are 20 million tonnes at least of grain still stuck inside Ukraine. And what seems to be happening now, it's almost like a pattern is emerging where we're going back and forth between different options, which seem to be very difficult options, about how to get that grain out. So one week we talk about opening a corridor in the Black Sea, maybe with UN-flagged vessels, maybe Turkish vessels, helping to facilitate those ships to get the grain out. Obviously that would need Russia's approval. And we had that last week, but diplomatic efforts seem to be slowing down on that front. And now the US is bringing in some of its support to help the already ongoing EU efforts, which focus on land, getting that grain onto railways, getting it onto trucks and trying to get it out over those borders. But of course, that has massive logistical problems as well. Right. And
3: ultimately, you know, the only good solution is one that actually works, right, that actually gets this food moving. So, I mean, I mean, what we're talking about here is a pretty... I would say, bleak economic backdrop across much of the world. And then feeding into this, Suzanne, story you've been following this week, you know, new tension between the UK and the EU over the Northern Ireland protocol, this, you know, special arrangement that was meant to kind of square the circle of what to do with Northern Ireland uh, in relation to the Brexit deal. Uh, Just give us a a brief summary of the move the UK has made, uh, how the EU is responding and where you see it going from here.
4: Um, It kicked off on Monday when the British Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, announced new legislation that's effectively going to override parts of the Northern Ireland protocol. That was the arrangements for Northern Ireland that would form part of the Brexit agreement. We had been expecting this. Um, They say in London that it's a way of addressing concerns of the unionist community in Northern Ireland who feel that there are too many barriers in trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So they feel, if you like, that their British identity is being diluted and they're refusing to go into government in Northern Ireland. But the Commission had been expecting this and uh, on Wednesday we heard from Mara Sefcovic. They fired the opening salvo, if you like, and how they're going to respond. So, number one, they have restarted infringement proceedings that they brought last year and then paused as a kind of gesture of goodwill. Which is and a
3: kind of legal action, a sort of EU legal action. Exactly. Can so, lead to court action.
4: And it could take a while. Yeah. And then in addition to that, they also uh, announced new legal infringement actions and this is to do with customs, border posts, but also data sharing. So, look, that's where we are. I suppose the good news is that if there's a trade war, and as you mentioned there, you know, this economic background here, particularly in in the UK, also in Europe, obviously, a lot of economic headwinds at the moment. But a trade war, trade action is, I think, some bit away yet. Mm. Um, officials here in Brussels are saying it will only be when that British legislation enters the statute books that they would take action and look that might A never happen and B could take up to a year so we're a good bit away from that yet but look there is definitely an appetite in member states and uh, not to reopen this and we're getting some very tough briefings uh, from Berlin and Paris that they're really not interested in reopening negotiations yes a few tweaks but if they have to they will uh, go the whole hog and uh, impose some kind Trade retaliation ultimately.
3: Okay, well, that's another one to watch. So now we're going to switch to amid all that doom and gloom. Uh, frankly, as it's my last uh, edition of the podcast, I thought we'd do something a little bit lighter. I think probably we've we've all earned a bit of light relief and. We're going to do a panel discussion about panel discussions. And this is because it's something that struck me. Eddie, uh, one of the reasons we have you on this week is because it's something that's also struck you, is the weird world of panel discussions and how central they are to kind of political life, particularly here in Brussels, also in other political bubbles. And what's striking to me is this is very different from real life. right? If you have a kind of normal job in the real world, I mean, I don't know if I mentioned to my parents that I was doing a panel. If they'd even know what I was talking about, they might think I was doing some kind of furniture repair. or I don't know. You know, this is a different world, but yet it's totally central to ours and it has its own kind of etiquette, uh, its own traditions and customs. It's like a little ecosystem in in itself. And so I thought we would do a little bit of duo panelo. Pick some phrases that are common in panels and see if we can figure out what they really mean. But Matt, I wanted to bring you on in on this because you're a real a panel veteran, I would say. I think one of the first things I discovered when I joined Politico was there was some talk of you doing a story and someone said you couldn't do it because you were doing a panel, and uh, which has been kind of one of the stories of the last five years, to be honest. So tell me, a lot, I mean, you do a lot of them. Why do you think... People like them in this sort of political community. Why do people like them so much? Why are they so popular? And and what do you get
2: out of them? Well, I guess the question is, why do people like me on a panel? More so than why do I like the panel? But, well, uh, some people do, some people don't. You know, I, I prefer to call them mannels because uh, most of the uh-huh. ones that I go on they often are, are, are male, which I enjoy because it, it really uh, gets the goat of, of my uh, female Colleagues out there in the Wilkesphere.
3: Yeah, Suzanne is already just uh, sitting back here thinking. They, they, already, I'm thinking that we might have to mute you. you Go to, on. You might have to mute me. the, the,
2: the reason I do it is because it gives you, as a as a journalist, you know, access to these people in a completely different environment. It's not a it's not a formal setting. You know, so it's kind
3: of formal. I mean, you're sitting on a stage with a bunch of politicians in suits. Of
2: course, at, during the panel itself, but the key is sort of the, the, the moments before the preparation before and uh, you know the time afterwards where you might sort of you know stand around and, and speak uh, informally with them for a few minutes depending how much how much time they have. And you know I think that is is really for me the valuable aspect of it. Mm, okay. Suzanne listen give me give me a sense what do, what do you
3: what do you think of uh, of these panels you know you've been doing them for a few years what what do you make of them what do you get out of them why do you think people like them so much as i was saying before it's not like they lead to any outcome it's not like a meeting where there are action points at the end of it and people say okay here's our plan for defending ukraine i mean That never comes out of a panel discussion. So what's
4: the attraction? Well, look, on a serious note, i was shaking my head there when Matt was talking about the Yeah. We all know, we've all been at them where there's, you know, white, pale, male and stale or whatever the phrase is. No offence taken, Suzanne. None. Um, But I mean, it's a serious point, actually. I think why panels are good is that it does inject a bit of diversity of opinion in there or it Mm. can do or it should do. Mm.
3: A good one can do. yeah. Yeah, a
4: good one. Absolutely. I mean, so much of our job as journalists or in our media climate, you know, you've a monolithic voice whether it's us writing our playbook or one of us writing an article or whatever. So it's, I think, always good to have more, you know, opinions. Now, of course, then you're into this whole, to get meta about it, you know, what kind of a panel do you pick? how diverse ever is a group of a panel yeah. in Brussels? Like, let's face it, you have the same kind of people come from the same perspectives. Um, but I think, look, the more voices, the better. You start, you know, hearing stuff from the audience. It starts you thinking as a journalist about different ways of thinking about something. We can all be in our bubble. So in that sense, yes, it's a bit lacking when it comes to actual, you know, action after a panel. But I think it is good. It can be fruitful for discussion and conversation.
3: Eddie, you're the one who started, I think, tweeting about these phrases that you kept hearing at these panel discussions. What what kind of struck you about them when you first uh, you know, entered this, the weird world of panels?
0: Well, the weird world of panels has definitely changed, you know, now that we're less so much in the eye of the storm of, of COVID, um, you know, there was pretty much two years there that we shouldn't forget that we were pretty much sitting on screens on these online panels. I mean, yeah. online panels are very different to real panels. I can
3: well, think of- that was interesting as well, right? The, 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 one of the things that the sort of members of the political bubble thought, we can't possibly do without panels. We'll have to do them online. It's not like, well, maybe we should you know, find something else to do. Like, the panel must go on.
0: The panel survives everything. It's like a cockroach in a nuclear <laughs> apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. It just keeps crawling on. And, uh, you know, it's definitely changed. But, but what I enjoy most about panels in Brussels is the sort of Euro, we've written stories about this together before, Andrew, but the sort of yeah. Euro English that you get coming out of these panels because you know, and this is not to not to criticise anyone's anyone's English skills, but I do think that it's it's funny when you have people you know announcing some brief household items right. at the beginning of a panel, and and you just get an interesting mixture of different languages. So
3: they mean like housekeeping, like rules as to how we're going to do things. But for you, that that throws up images of fridges or microwaves you know, or, or, or wooden right,
0: spoons yeah. and things like yeah. that. And sometimes you know, I, I'm, I was expecting this person to get them out on stage, but unfortunately, yeah. you know, they just they just moved on and announced some boring rules. Um, but no, I think I, I love the sort of formality of it, the sort of fake formality of it. Everybody enters into this different kind of lingo, this different kind of world where you're thanking someone for their intervention and you're saying, can I just jump in here? And everyone has to start off their opening remarks by talking about how timely this, this panel is. Well, obviously it's timely because it's happening right now.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's true. Nobody ever says this topic is really, really not relevant at the moment. I don't really know why we're talking about it. It's amazing. They always they seem to be just at, the panels always seem to be just at the right time. So... Okay. spinning off that, we've got a few phrases here. We're going to do kind of dual panel, taking our inspiration from these kind of language learning apps. I am going to read for us some of these phrases and then we're all going to try and kind of guess or give our best sense of what they really mean. So just kind of give your translation right afterwards. Okay. so I'll start with the first phrase. It's my pleasure to be moderating today's event.
4: I've had to moderate this because we don't have enough women who are involved in these panels. We're going to put Suzanne out there to be the face of diversity.
0: (laughs) Good, good one. Eddie, got anything to top that? I'm thinking about my paycheck for this uh, moderation.
2: (laughs) Matt? We're going to put Kurnichnig out there to improve the face of diversity. (laughs) So the one I had was, I used to have a proper job
3: as a journalist, but then I found this much cushier gig. Okay, uh, next one. We have a diverse range of panellists. Translation. We have one woman. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. I think I've got another one here. They're from remarkably diverse backgrounds.
0: Commission, Council, Parliament.
3: Good. Matt? We've got the leaders of the Western Balkans here for you. <laughs> okay. Uh, mine on that one was, we've got graduates from both campuses of the College of Europe. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, here's, a, here's a classic one. I'm going to slightly disagree with the previous speaker. Matt?
2: You're full of shit.
4: i don't know how i'm going to say publicly how awful your idea is but i'm going to pretend that in the interest of dialogue uh we can kind of come to some kind of compromise
3: yeah good good here's another one my question is more of a comment
4: I have been paid here by my company to come to the audience and ask questions. So this is my opportunity to lobby the commission on some obscure part of a food regulation. And this is my big moment in the sun.
3: Yeah, I think that pretty much nails it. I had uh, my question is entirely a comment. There is no question in it whatsoever.
2: I've had enough and I can't take it anymore.
3: (laughs) OK, we did. We already touched on this. This is a very timely discussion anyone my, my translation for that was john monet was talking about this 70 years ago and it wasn't very interesting then
2: please don't get up and leave <laughs>
3: yeah don't go for lunch yet okay which is really all about strategic autonomy matt oh god who says uh, <laughs> that's good <laughs> My, my, I'll give you my translation for that was I've no idea whether it is or not but it might win me some brownie points with Macron another one that we all hear I'll be brief
0: that's the briefest thing you'll say
3: <laughs> yeah what about, I think this was one that you looked at Eddie to, or we talked about before when someone says just to conclude
0: Mm-hmm. They're just starting,
3: right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, they really are. um Okay, I think that was a pretty good selection. Okay, uh, I think we've all got work to do, so I'm going to let everyone
2: uh, get back to it. Well, we have we have one more thing to address, Andrew. Oh yeah, this is your last panel. Yeah. I mean, it's probably not your last panel. We don't know what you'll what you'll be doing, but it's your it's your last appearance. On this podcast, and I, I think we should, uh, you know, take a moment to give you a round of applause and to thank you for all of your oh. your hard work here. Um, I think many listeners don't know this, but you and I first started working in the last century together. That is true. For a different employer, and I... typewriters and telex machines. And I, I, I seem to remember you were my my trainee back then. Uh, <laughs> I I remember it a bit differently. Uh, yeah, although you're a bit older than I am, but uh, yeah, no, I think you know, what you what I, you
3: might be mixing that up is that I was on the fast track at Reuters, whereas you were on the slow track and uh, had to leave. I think that might be what you mean. Yeah, yeah, worked out okay for you. Got a lot of panels out of it.
2: But you know, I sort of feel a little bit like Obi Wan Kenobi here that you feel that you've spent enough time with me again. Now you've learned everything. Maybe more than enough. Can. Maybe more than enough. Yeah, more, more, more than enough and you're ready to go out into the world and uh, yeah. may the force be with you. <laughs> okay.
3: Thank you on that uh, quite unnecessary note. Uh, thanks, everyone. We'll let you get on with your day, uh, Eddie and Suzanne. And Matt, thanks for, yeah, everything. Everything over the years or almost everything.
2: Thank you. And, and, and thank you for that uh, batch of expenses that's coming your way in the next couple of days. So. <laughs>
3: better come soon okay (laughs) thanks everyone thank you thank you cheers bye now a quick word about what's happening with the podcast as i bow out to be honest that's pretty much all that will change this will still be the place to be every week for lively discussion and analysis of european politics and we'll continue to bring you interviews with politicians policymakers activists think tankers authors thinkers and anyone else we reckon you'll be interested in hearing from. Over the coming weeks, you'll hear a variety of voices from across our newsroom taking care of hosting and interviews. Some will be familiar, some will be new. All of them will have interesting insights to bring you. So stay tuned and be sure to stick with EU Confidential. If you haven't subscribed to or followed the podcast yet, now is a great time to do so. And after this short break, we'll find out what happens when poetry meets economics with retired British diplomat, John
5: Ramsden. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads
1: In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, Listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth, and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe.
3: Now let's meet our guest John Ramsden, a veteran British diplomat, a former ambassador to Croatia who also served in Germany and Vietnam and Senegal, among other places. And his recently published new book is called The Poet's Guide to Economics, about the largely forgotten impact that poets had on economic, financial and monetary policies. Hello, John. Thanks very much for joining us. Hello, Andrew. So how did you come up with the idea for this book? I know you've published others, but this particular one, The Poet's Guide to Economics, where did the inspiration for that come from?
6: Well, I did history and economics at Cambridge many, many, many moons ago. I guess at some point I stumbled on the fact that some great writers from the sort of literary poetic camp had actually written quite seriously about economics, and I think it sort of intrigued me. But I set the project aside. I mean, decades ago. And in the meantime, you know, economics perhaps lost its shine a bit, particularly in the, in the financial crash. So I came back to the project in a slightly different spirit and thinking, well, maybe these guys really had something to say. And come the lockdown, I you know, got all my notes together and, and put the book together. The interest in the book to me is that some of the greatest writers in the English language wrote quite seriously about economics with books with titles like the logic of political economy or the ABC of economics and, you know, campaigned on economic issues. And so I just wanted to present in outline what some of them had said.
3: And it is perhaps, um, at least at first glance, surprising uh, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, associate poetry and, and economics as, you know, kind of natural bedfellows, if you like, but uh, especially as, and I know this is debated, how much economics is really a science. But, you know, we're talking about arts and sciences to an extent. Why do you think or what did you discover about why so many uh, poets felt interested in writing about economics or, or felt compelled to do so?
6: Well, I think there are two levels of this. One is that they saw what economics was doing to the society around them, and you know, in many cases, didn't like it. But also, philosophically, I think they disagreed with the fundamental sort of assumptions of economics. And I think back historically, poets felt it was up to them to sort of set the moral tone of society. You know, they're they're, they're the heirs of Milton and Dante and Homer and all of it, and. Here was economics becoming society's unspoken religion. And so it was up to them to kind of stick a finger up and say, uh, you know, hang on, this religion doesn't add up.
3: Right. You've got a a number of examples in the book. I'm going to ask you to try and pick maybe one or two favourites, perhaps one or two you think might be particularly interesting for our listeners. Are there any that spring to mind, any that are particularly close to your heart?
6: Perhaps I'd pick out uh, Walter Scott. I mean, in 1826, he saved the Scottish banknote and every banknote issued by the Bank of Scotland since then has carried his image in gratitude for what he did. I mean, And, and at the time, I mean, it's such a romantic story because he, he was facing bankruptcy. His publishers had just gone under, owing £130,000, which is like sort of £10 million in those days. And, and he was jointly liable and his, his wife was dying and he was ill, but he nevertheless found the time and somehow the energy to write a series of pamphlets that killed dead a government reform, which would effectively have have probably killed off fledgling highland industries because the British government wanted to ban banks from issuing banknotes for sums under £5, which would have meant using gold or silver, which would have been very, very difficult in the circumstances of the Scottish Highlands and would probably have killed off industries like the herring fishing and the helping, which is just getting going. So, you know, Walter Scott wrote to the rescue and wrote a series of pamphlets, which effectively killed this reform.
1: Mm.
3: Another that uh, struck me from the book, I mean, uh, one of the things you see is that in some cases, these are poets who have campaigned or written pamphlets and engaged in economic debate that way. But there are also some who have used it quite directly in their poetry. And Shelley struck me as one of those. Perhaps you could talk a bit about him and his approach to economics. To my mind, one of the most interesting
6: passages in my book is where Shelley attacks the whole financial system that has grown up in the 100 years since Defoe. And what he says is, look, these banks can create credit at the stroke of a pen and they, on the whole, give the credit to the wealthy who can then go out and buy things. And the things that they buy have to be made by the workers. And where the workers used to just, you know, provide for the simple wants of themselves and uh, indeed, you know, the nobles and others who don't work, now they find, thanks to this new financial industry, that with the same number of pair of hands have to provide for all these sophisticated new wants which the financial system has made possible and their own wants are sort of squeezed out. So it is, in a way, something Marx then said in a much more sophisticated way further down the track, which is, hey, we're turning everything into a commodity and we're also turning our our sort of workers into a commodity, and Shelley is saying, well, the worker wants to sit in front of his cottage and grow his tomatoes and feed his family, and three hours work a day should be quite enough to do that um, and provide for everyone
3: in society. Sounds pretty good. Uh, do you happen to have any verse to hand? I've got some from the book. I've got a little bit marked on page 59.
6: Well, yes, that, that's a, a, interesting. So he, this was a, a poem he dashed off after the Peterloo massacre when you know, 600 innocent people were charged by a cavalry squadron for protesting against you know, this, this awful slump and their conditions of life. And in the middle of it, I mean, he asks... Um, what does slavery mean to the poor? And he says, Tis to see your children weak with their mothers pine and peak when the winter winds are bleak. They are dying whilst I speak. Tis to hunger for such diet as the rich man in his riot cast to the fat dogs that lie surfeiting beneath his eye. Tis to let the ghost of gold take from toil a thousandfold more than e'er its substance could in the tyrannies of old, paper coin that forgery of the title deeds which ye hold to something of the worth of the inheritance of earth.
3: Very good and unrehearsed. (laughs) (laughs) So he's sort of saying there,
6: look, this paper money is kind of inflating the demands of the rich and powerful and squeezing out the purchasing power of the poor.
3: Is anything that might be of particular interest or did anyone focus particularly on Europe as an economic construct? Because obviously that's one of the underpinnings of the European Union is this idea of creating a single Mm -hmm. market, a common market, and thereby reducing the risks and dangers of war, which have been, you know, ever present on the European continent for centuries.
6: Yes and no. I think economically it would be sort of unhistorical to say that these people could even imagine a thing like the single market. And indeed, their general thrust is to say that, as, as indeed Keynes once said, let goods be homespun, I mean, they're, you know, the idea of an economy where 10,000 lorries a day have to sort of trundle through the Straits of Dover, you know, to keep the supply chain going would probably have horrified most of them. You know, my, I think one of the things that my poets are perhaps a reminder about is how quickly the sort of well-meaning technocrat of the day can lose the moral high ground. Uh, this, I think, is a problem which faces the Davos man of today. I mean, look at the difficulty, which I mean, I personally am a strong supporter of the whole European construct. I did my best in the Brexit referendum, but we lost. And I think the interesting thing you know, is not for me to come on and moan about Brexit, but to come on and say, well, why did we lose? Why, why couldn't we win that argument?
3: And what do you think the answer to that is?
6: Part of the answer is that, you know, we'd just gone through the financial crisis and met it with more austerity, which is perceived to be unfairly visited on the citizenry. But I mean, I think more broadly and what perhaps one could take from this book is that if you have a political offering, which basically consists of all out blind pursuit of economic efficiency, it's not very attractive to an awful lot of people. And I mean, what the poets are always saying is, look, hang on, there's a community out there, there's a a society, there are sort of traditions and, you know, there's nature out there. There's all sorts of things beyond your economics. And they talk about the sort of incredibly disruptive effect of this economic efficiency. I mean, Bernard Shaw calls it the, the runaway car of capitalism Coleridge goes on about the, the commercial spirit getting out of hand, or whatever you care to call it, and Shelley with his unmitigated exercise of the calculating faculty, but, but whatever language they pick up, it's to say, if you put everything into this economic efficiency, it'll sort of work up to a point, and then there'll be a backlash.
1: Hmm.
3: Very interesting. Well, in general terms, anyway, I think it's a good uh, reminder to us all when, even when we're thinking about economics or reading about economics, yeah, not just to read the economists, but, uh, and so perhaps even in these current times, we should be looking around and, and seeing what the poets are saying.
6: I wouldn't, you know, for a moment suggest that poets should go back to writing books about economics. But what I think these poets do perhaps encourage us to do is to take more of an interest in economics because the trouble with economics since I studied it is it's gone off into a sort of total ivory tower of mathematics, and people don't even realize what the economics is saying, and yet it has this extraordinary influence on our lives, and I think. You know, the the economists should jolly well explain their theories in plain English. And I think the rest of us should be encouraged to feel that we can actually question theories which often turn out to be wrong as science.
1: Mm,
3: Absolutely. well I think we'll have to leave it there. It's been a fascinating discussion. John Ramsden, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's almost it for this episode of EU Confidential. Just time for me to take a final bow after more than 135 editions of the show, covering everything from all-night EU summits through big elections to the coronavirus and the war in Ukraine. I'm leaving Politico, going to take a bit of a break, probably have a crack at writing a book, and then hopefully get back to journalism. If you want to stay in touch with me the easiest way is via Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore r underscore grey. This is not the Oscars and I'm not Gwyneth Paltrow, but I do want to say just a few thank yous. Some of these names may be familiar if you've listened uh, down the years. First to the original podcast team of Ryan Heath, Lena Aberous and Alba Finn. Thanks also to the on-air crew at the heart of this version of the show, Matt Karnichnik, Reem and in our pre-Brexit days, Annabel Dixon. I also wanted to pay tribute to the encouragement and support we received from Stephen Brown, who we lost last year. Thanks to all the political reporters who have contributed to the podcast and to the interns who've done so much to keep the show running over the years. Our latest is Namratha Prasad. Thanks to Freelance producers Wei Dong Lin and Antonio Fernandez, a special shout out to Julia Poloni, who's done so much to help the podcast in her time with both the product and production teams. And very special thanks to our executive producer Christina Gonzalez. I could not possibly have wished for a better partner in these audio adventures of the past few years. Remember, the show goes on. It will be back as usual next week, just with a different accent or two. If the show has helped you keep on top of European politics, I'm glad. If it's entertained you occasionally, even better. Or if you just came across us somewhere out there randomly and we provided some companionship, I'm pretty happy about that too. So, as I've said more than a few times over the past few years, thanks to you for listening.